to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. My name is Amr Dalawalia. I'm the host of the podcast and editor-in-chief of The Evolution. In this episode, we kick off our CIO radio series, where we speak with technology leaders about the trends and challenges reshaping our increasingly digital space. In today's episode, we speak with UC Irvine's Chief Digital Officer, Tom Andriola. This episode was recorded live at Educause, and our conversation explored the increasingly critical role digital leaders play in the modernization of, let's be honest, largely change-averse higher education institutions. Tom Andriola, welcome to the Illumination Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time out here. Uh, We're recording live at uh, Educause 22 in Denver. Tom! Uh, how's how's the trip been for you so far? How are you enjoying the conference? You know, it's fantastic. Uh, it's one. It's great to be back out in person oh with God. all of our colleagues, yes. and that's just amazing. Uh, Denver's also an amazing city. Uh, I have friends here that I was able to wrap a personal visit around, seeing some old friends. So it's just been a great great experience so far. Absolutely. Well, you know, you I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your role because uh, it's a unique title. You're the vice chancellor for information technology and data, and you're the chief digital officer at the University of California at Irvine. What does a chief digital officer do? Yeah, well, here was part of the genius, right? We wanted to create a a role that was different. Mm -hmm. That was very much by design. Um, You know, it started with this conversation about the role of technology is transforming everything that we do and yes. we have to bring it back to the way we think about what we're going to be doing in the future. Mm-hmm. I was able to add the component of data because you know, for me, technology is a data generation device. What we really okay. make decisions on are data. And so data is the thing that's transforming the world, the way yes. we work, the way we live, the way we interact with people. And so, you know, the vice chancellor role is understood inside of higher education, but the outside world understands the role like the chief digital officer. And so yeah. the university allows me to, to use both. So the way I describe what I do, it's like, look, my job is to be a part of every conversation, you know, in our um, institution, which runs from education, research, how we care for patients, Mm -hmm. making sure our strategies are infused with the role of technology, the role of data, finding ways to make those strategies unique differentiating so that UCI stands out from the crowd. Yes. And then how can we do it through working with partners in the most cost-effective way? So that's kind of the way I summarize what I end up doing at the end of the day. And again, the range of topics, especially in this post-pandemic world, mm-hmm. is just immense, the number of conversations I get involved in. You know, it's, it's interesting, as you, as you frame out this idea of differentiation, because from a, from a digital perspective, it really does feel like that's the core of where colleges and universities can start to differentiate themselves as we're in an increasingly digital world. What are some of the characteristics or the factors that, that you look at as being particularly differentiating in in the capacity of, of, it, of something that a chief digital officer could influence? Yeah, I mean, so the name of my podcast is called Digital Squared, Life in an Increasing Digital World, right? Our entire human existence is really being captured through data streams now, yes. through digital technologies. And so you know, one of the things I push is in every conversation is how are we thinking about things differently now that we're capturing it more and more digitally? And let mm-hmm. me give you a really simple example that I use with audiences. When I get up on stage and I do a presentation, you know, in an analog world, I stand on stage, I talk, I use my body language, the audience sees me, reacts. 
It's, it's an analog experience. But think about today's world. It's over Zoom. You can basically capture a transcript of the words I've said, a video clip of how I use my body and my 43 facial muscles, and a tonal wave file of the inflections that I use. Those are mm -hmm. all data streams to me. I know of companies that are, that are doing algorithmic predictive development on each of those three data streams. You put that together and you might find out that I'm a great communicator, but I'm actually a closet depression sufferer. Interesting. Right? So you, know, you start putting an example like that of things that we allow our, you know, our senses to do now being captured and, and now it's a data stream that we can analyze. Hmm. Now kind of apply that to everything that you're looking at, the student experience. What happens in the classroom? How do you correlate student activity in clubs with their academic performance, right. with the environment that they live in, with whether they're eating a healthy diet, getting enough sleep? Mm -hmm. It all now, you mash it together and you start to say, we can understand this individual in a campus student context holistically. And we actually take that concept from healthcare where we're trying to understand the patient in a, in a holistic manner. You know, not just what their, you know, blood blood pressure is, yeah. but what genomics do they have? What type of environment? Can they get to good food? So these concepts are kind of merging around an increasingly digital world. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring up healthcare because that's, you know, as in my preparation, uh, as I poked through your LinkedIn, you know, it, it's fascinating. You've, you've held IT leadership roles, both in, in higher ed and the healthcare sectors. When we talk about uh, a lot of conversations in higher ed technology, higher ed policy building, we tend to look at the healthcare industry as, as maybe a bellwether. So I'm just curious about your perspective on, you know, what are some of the similarities and differences from your, uh, that you've seen between those two spaces? Yeah. All right, let me start with, um, let me start with some similarities, right? Um, one, people who decide to work in the industry are very mission driven. Yes. Right. I mean, they care about, you know, people getting great care and recovering, right? They care about social mobility. So people who are in the industry have a deep passion for the work itself. Mm -hmm. That, that is one of the things that is very much the same. Um, a second thing is that in the case of healthcare, it's the doctor. In the case of uh, university institutions, it's the professor. Mm. And this kind of power dynamic of the subject matter expert as really, really important to delivering value and then the supporting organization around it. And that power dynamic is something that we struggle with, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in terms of it's very entrenched into the, let's say the culture, yeah. but in this digital world, it's balancing out because, you know, for example, technology professionals are now much more important to success of the, of the mission of student success than maybe we were 15 years ago, right? Huh. So the power dynamic is something that exists in both industries. Um, I, I think one of the things that, you know, that for me that is, is um, different in ed education is I think change is harder in education, but for different reasons. Interesting. You know, I mean, doctors work under this do no harm concept, but they all are always looking for a better way to, to uh, see patients. And they're very data driven around mm -hmm. that. In, in higher education, when we tend to run into change, resistance to change in new concepts, it has to do with, well, we've been around for 100, 
150 years. Right. We're going to be around for 150 more. And so, you know, we don't, we don't have to be in a, in a hurry to do things. However, I, you know, I find that there's a lot of innovation at the edge in, in higher yes. education, right? I mean, there are, you know, you find those faculty members who are pushing the boundary and doing things in the metaverse already, mm-hmm. right? Or you go to the esports complex and those are your metaverse students today that I think become the mass population yeah. of students that are going to be on our campuses in maybe five to seven years. So I think the, 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 the change is hard for both, but for very different reasons. Well, that's fair. You know, I want to follow up on that because it's, it, it's a topic that we tend to come back to over and over again is, you know, the evolution is a publication rooted in the continuing education space. That's, that's really where, where we came out of. Um, and, uh, you know, in fact, the three L's in evolution stand for lifelong learning. It's, it's really a, a focus of ours. Yeah, there you go. See? Fun trivia. Now, podcast listeners have heard me give that little piece of trivia probably 10 or 11 times. So sorry, guys, but whatever. Um, so, you know, as one of the things that's unique about that space is it it's where a lot of experimentation happens in the post-secondaries. It's where certificates are really born. That's where online education really got its root in the formal post-secondary space. One of the things I'm curious about is, as these little skunk work operations kind of work around different parts of the campus, what does it take to bring that innovation to the core of what the institution yeah, does? Yeah, like, what a great how do question. You make that innovation start to progress. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and you know, if anyone really had the formula for that, uh, you know, they would be okay. making a lot more money yeah. than I would than I do. Uh, you know, because I I think it it starts here. So. You know, I've had the good fortune in my career to work in different environments, including different countries. And one of the things I, I always have kind of picked up from those different experiences start by immersing yourself in the new environment and listen a lot and pick up on signals that give you cultural insights. And one of the things that, uh, one of the phrases I learned in higher education when I came into it is, let a thousand flowers bloom, which is kind of a concept, especially at research universities where every faculty member is their own entrepreneur and you got to let the entrepreneurs do their thing. And so that's where this innovation at the edge is really comes from is we don't try to manage innovation. We really try to plant, you know, a field of seeds and see which ones sprout. The part that I brought from with my corporate uh, years of experience is how do you take those innovations and take them to scale, mm. right? That That is really important in business, right? Because you're always innovating in business, yes. but unless you can turn it into, you know, a hundred million dollar business, right? Or unless your Google can get it to, you know, 500 million users of it, yeah. it's not success, right? So I'm always, I've been tinkering with what's the formula to get from that edge innovation to use by maybe it's 30% of the enterprise, right? right? And then how do you get from 30 to 50? How do you get from 50 to 70? How do you scale? And a lot of that is through basically collaborations and connections using the, you know, the combination of human contact and digital tools to say, how do you cross pollinate? A great example just this last week is top of mind is, you know, we're using chatbots in terms of our student interactions around admissions and financial aid, right? You know, uh, they're very comfortable with that technology. I was talking about it, you know, in a, in a, forum and our human resources officer approached me and said, I'd love to get connected to that group because we should be using chatbots for our employee communication for the repetitive questions. So there's an example of what I think is a core technology, which is today chatbots, tomorrow digital humans, uh, that is a core kind of horizontal technology for us. And my job is to figure out how do we not only have two or three use cases, but 20 or 30 use cases, because that leverage makes us a more cost-effective organization 
right? That's the that's the cost effectiveness approach to my my role. So so there's some examples. No, that's absolutely. And it's kind of fascinating is when we talk about efficiency, people get very bored by the idea of efficiency. But it fascinates me because it's it's the idea of how do you allow people to maximize their time? How do you really put people in a position to spend energy and effort on the things that they really do as, as humans that aren't shouldn't be replicable, right? And and that's that efficiency becomes very magical when you start looking at it through that context. It's Absolutely. how do you leverage technology? Yeah, I was having, I, I won't out the institution, right? Because this is kind of a, a scary <laughs> concept right now to higher ed, but we were talking robotic process automation, which I've been involved in on the healthcare side for a couple of years, have not really been able to find the inroad yet in education because people translate that into job Jobs. loss, right? Yeah. right? Oh, wow, that was awesome when we did that. <laughs> we didn't plan that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I found a university that has got their first couple of use cases, and I was asking a lot about the experience. But there Here's a perfect example. How much of even that white collar work in, you know, information, you know, in, you know, uh, industry work is really repetitive tasks, repetitive keystrokes. And we've got technology to take that work off of people's daily routines. And that would be a really good thing. If for nothing else, the accuracy, because we as humans make a lot of mistakes on repetitive (laughs) tasks when they're mundane. So let's get the human out and let's reinvest that time into things that use the higher functions of our brain. Very, very logical. We all know the change management challenges yeah. are really different. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's kind of fascinating, like if you look at the McKinsey studies about the power of automation and robotics, is they don't, they do highlight job loss as a concept. The, the, the jobs that are replaced by automation, it's about 12%. The stat that everyone keeps citing is 55%. 55% is paid work activities. And it's such an important difference to draw out. Because that's not to say that 55% of people are going to lose their jobs. It means 55% of people's time is going to be opened up to things that are specifically human relevant. That should excite everyone. Absolutely. When if you think about, because uh, here's a place like in in the medical industry that we talk about it a lot, which is those those things that have to be documented and are now still done very manual in the form of keyboard, you know, fingers on keyboard yep. takes the doctor's focus away from the patient and to the keyboard and the computer. And patients tell us about the way they feel about that interaction that they're not being listened to. Why? Because the attention seems to be on the keyboard. Turn that into an automated way of of documentation. And all of a sudden, it's eye contact. It's watching body language. It's just, it's a better patient experience, right? You know, I don't have right now the equivalent in in the higher education space, right? Because the numbers are really different. It's you know, it's one, it's, it's one instructor to a hundred, but it's all about the personalized experience. While we get in all this technology, the places where we're really successful is in when it gives us personalization and intimacy yes. back. Yes. A hundred percent. So actually you've, you've keyed on personalization, which is a trend that I'm fascinated by the concept. We of need more, we need more of it in education, right? So what are some of the other trends you're watching? What are some of the things that are capturing your imagination? Yeah, I think, you know, um, one is um, I'm a big believer. I'm a big, big believer in like, you know, dream big, step small. Okay. Uh, And so the concept is to me, education should be an end of one goal. 
each student, we should understand them as an individual at the end of the day and their unique life, you know, life experiences and circumstances as well as goals. And we should be trying to tailor what we do with them around those goals, yep. right? And, and those constraints or limitations or, uh, or, or, uh, or, or barriers that they, that come with them. And so the concept, and you know, if you go to consumer, if you go to consumer goods companies, um, I do some work with Mars, the candy company. Um, their, their, and their understanding of customers about N equals eight. So for someone who buys peanut M&Ms, they've got us kind of dot down to a subset of about N equals eight customers profiled differently. Oh yeah. Isn't that amazing to think about that? Yeah. So, okay. How did you get to N equals eight of understanding students, you know, at a university that's got 400,000 students, how much more personalized. And we're seeing this come in the form of students wanting optionality about how they uh, consume their educational content. Right. Yeah. I, I still want to go to class for some types of classes and some kinds I don't want to sit in, in a lecture hall with 500 other people because that's very impersonal. So I'm fine just watching the lectures. And when I've been out late with my friends on Thursday night, Friday morning, I want to make the choice when that alarm goes off. Yeah. Right. So. Right. So this is the type of one element of personalization. we're coming. But what I'm talking about through data is really understanding the individual holistically what kind of background they came from. What kind of activities are they involved in? Um, you know, are they a frequent user of library? services, how much time do they spend in the LMS and what do they do in the LMS? And then really personalizing and understanding the unique learner and tailoring the experiences and the things that they get access to and how hard maybe they're nudged to helping them achieve the goals that they've set. And then following that through their entire time with you, you know, at the institution. Absolutely. I mean, that's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, we're, we're going to move to the the concept of, of leveraging these, these kinds of strategies to drive student success. But one of the things that really, really stands out to me is this idea of the, the evolving role of the institution, right? We're no longer in an environment where a post-secondary institution can, can stand on a mountaintop or can, can perceive itself as being beyond reproach in terms of how students are being engaged with. It really is more of a partnership. So this, it feels like a progression towards this new vision of what a post-secondary institution's role can be in serving a learner as opposed to the, you know, almost to a certain extent, the learner being served by access to the institution. Yeah, yeah. We, we, have, a, we have a phrase, which we're, we're still kind of tinkering with how we're going to land it, right? But, you know, especially as, you know, a research university with a highly selective student body that we've been able to, you know, kind of filter coming in, uh, trying to, from a pedagogical perspective, move away from, you know, uh, weeding out to a no student gets left behind mentality with how we do them, right? You know, yeah. because I really think that, you know, that kind of using that Marine concept of no, no soldier yeah, left behind absolutely. is, you know, we've already kind of done the vetting as part of admissions. There shouldn't be another vetting process. And let's, let's face it, you know, too many of our students today are being pushed out of the major they wanted to study. And in some cases, we need more of in our economy, let's say, you know, engineering, sciences with what's going on in the world. We need to grow more at home. We need to stop weeding those students out into other majors and saying, hey, we already know you are very, very capable. How do we help you get there? You know, when you go to medical school, for example, the goal isn't to throw you out of medical school. The goal no, is how to get yeah. you across the goal we line, teach right? You. Why are we not doing that <laughs> in undergraduate education as well? So look uh, to because, your left, look to your right. Oh my God. Run. Yes. Yes. And you know, we've been doing that from when I went to school, which yeah. I know your, you know, your, your followers can't see me, but that was a long time ago. It's, it's it's disastrous, but this is I, I'm fascinated by our progression towards more of a lifelong learning 
all this idea that you know we do have a role to play in supporting learner success because once we take that seriously it it really does start to position our industry in, in maybe a light that you know I'm very I, I keep up to date on, on the enrollment trends and one of the, you know it's it's been a staggering couple of years um, have, has that touched you guys very much? Not really. I mean, yeah. California is a unique case because, you know, we just have so many students who are, who, you know, who are in a position to go for higher education, right? And they've got great options associated with them. So, no, I mean, so, um, you know, we had a, roughly 120,000 applications for our school, you know, to attend this fall. So we're not seeing the enrollment challenge, you know, but we are seeing kind of what happens once we get in and, and how do we really change the mentality to making sure everybody gets out, you know, gets out sooner, yeah. gets out with, you know, a diploma, a set of really developed competencies for the workplace, a set of, real, I'm a bit real big into real world experiences while you're a student. It was really impactful when I went through to have those, you know, not just like knowing a bunch of engineering contents and formulas and theories, but that I had applied it to something. It actually helped me want to be a better student. And then when I got to the workplace, I could explain how I could apply what I knew to solve problems that companies needed to solve, right? And so, and that just makes you more valuable. And when we talk to employers today, we talk to industry, the number one thing they want to talk about is the talent gap. They are struggling with the talent, yeah. holding it, bringing it in, getting it up to speed. And so, you know, there's a golden opportunity. I'm talking to a set of industry leaders in a few weeks to say, you know, this is not about job fairs anymore. That's dead. This is about an intimate connection inside, right? To your point, we're not up on the hill. We're down in the valley, in the middle of town, inviting people to sit alongside us, partner with us. And I'm like, get a front row seat to these students invest into the world world experiences that they're getting and oh by the way when you do that you will with that front row seat you'll see and be able to talk and offer that student a job before anyone else in the marketplace sees them that's differentiation that's right that's yeah. and, and and that really resonates and i know this because i was in industry for a while i know what the talent uh the, ch the talent challenge looks like well it's, it, again it, it kind of comes back to this idea of you know is the institutional learning and if you're a learning partner to the student, if you're a learning partner to the local community, to local employers, that's where you start to be able to create massive impact on socioeconomic growth, economic development, all these pieces of the mission that tend to be, you know, they're in the strategic plan, but it, it can be challenging to actually start to execute on those ideas. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really cool for me in coming in, in this role that we created to take advantage of my, you know, my experiences and my talents is I'm one that's very deeply involved in the workforce or regional economic development um, initiative yeah. for our for our region and you know who would think that the person who they think is the chief information officer would be involved in something like that? I am because I'm, you know, we have a chief information officer and he's really, really good at it. He's better than I would ever be at that role, right? But I'm sitting that level above saying strategically, you know, technology and data are a great way for us to collaborate with the ecosystem that we sit within as well as create new ecosystems. And so that's a concept we call the collaboratories at UCI, which has done everything from, you know, build strategies to work with industry to develop new research institutes to driving our internal in institutional transformation all through data. Absolutely. Well, you know, we've talked a little bit about personalization. We've talked about uh, workforce alignment. We've talked about the institution as a learning partner. How else do you see the, the effective leveraging of data impacting student success and the student experience? Yeah, it's like, you know, this is, uh, you know, I, my job is to push, like, it, it is to 
ask the questions and try to push the conversation to points of being just uncomfortable enough that we can, you know, move, move the barometer. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, it's, it's coming back to this holistic understanding of our students. Like, you know, I, I believe that, you know, that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just with our students, right? You know, I believe that connecting with people who want a higher education experience, we could connect with them and interact with them and start to understand them when some people think all the way to middle school, right? But let's yep. say at least, you know, maybe two years before they actually uh, attend a, an institution of higher education. So start interacting with the collection. Start and get to know them, what they want. Start to give them good quality information. So many students today just don't have good information about higher education, and so they get directed to a place that doesn't fit their needs or doesn't fit their wants. And so, so start building that. You know, when, when we finally kind of get them into our environment, it's really to think about them, you know, as learners, as individuals trying to become, you know, um, more adult-like in their yeah. right as as social beings in terms of the the community that they're involved in, the clubs and activities that they're involved in, their interests. Getting back to overall student wellness, right? Student wellness is about, you know, my emotional well-being. Am I getting enough sleep? How am I eating? Right? Uh, you know, the balance that comes around. Which sometimes there are things that happen to our students that kind of are outside of things that we can control but sometimes when you know we're we've got data streams that we're collecting on things because maybe they've accessed for certain parts of the campus that well wait a minute this is a student that maybe needs help right i mean we you know taking a concept uh we were talking about this we were talking about this last week as well. It's like, you know, we have concepts in healthcare where we identify certain types of patient populations, chronic disease patients, like hypertension um, and um, uh, type 2 diabetes. And we know certain things that we can now capture through data that if people aren't staying on their meds, which means they're higher probability of ending up back in the, in the emergency yeah. room. And that's a high cost event. So you identify, you stratify those groups and you actually reach out and ping with them. Sometimes it's a phone call, but now with smartphones, sometimes you it could be a, a nudge text, yeah, yeah. with a text, right? Uh, um, so how do you take that concept and drop back to and identify what students are, are potentially kind of struggling? Can you see it through the data? Is it coming through data that we from the learning management system and, and maybe it's something that's going on in the class and concepts that they're struggling with? Is it things that everything looks like they're going to be a successful student, but there are things that are happening in student life that we can associate, you know, that we can associate with it? And and how do we how do we build the intervention points and right mechanisms, right? Um, I, I think the texting and nudging thing has a lot of potential that's still yet untapped in the higher education environment. Uh, whether it's to get them to do the right thing so they get to the, you know, they get to the grade they want in the class, but also, you know, maybe to just give them the idea that there are these services on campus that are available to them. Because we find a lot of times, especially with first generation students and undocumented students, they don't even know what they don't no, know, right? Absolutely. And so we have to be much more proactive. If we're going to leave no student behind, much more proactive in reaching out and pointing those students in the right direction or to the service that could be of help to them. We were talking about this yesterday, just about, especially with undocumented students, literally it's human glue. It's, they end up, you know, in our inclusive excellence, you know, office, and then they call someone who get the student to the service. There's something to help them, but they just don't even know that it's there, right? So it's our obligation. Our students shouldn't have to manage our complexity. We need to simplify their work. World, and I think data is a key a key point to do that. Hundred percent. You know what's kind of fascinating is as, as you're kind of point, as you're pointing out this this bridge, 
so many of those spaces where there's room for innovation, room for growth, tend to be in the parts of the institution that have always been considered nice to have, a little bit peripheral. You're talking, you know, and not not to disparage anyone because you know that this is these are all areas that I passionately believe in. But when we're talking about student affairs, we're talking about continuing in workforce education, we're talking about website management and, and digital digital architecture design. These spaces that have been considered a little bit periphery to what the institution does are the spaces where the, the innovation is necessary to make sure that students have access to their services because we're starting to see that these services aren't nice to have. These are critical, critical. to learner success. And, and timeliness of them can be really important Absolutely. to help students, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I want to shift gears a little bit because you've been obviously a, a major advocate for diversity, equity, inclusion uh, initiatives over the past few years, over, over the course of your career. Can you talk a little bit about how this plays into to your role as chief digital officer? Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it starts from, um, you know, having a diverse set of experiences that happen and living around the world and, and in my, it, you know, in, in its own way, being a minority, right? And so when you've lived through that lens, uh, you know, you, you start to think things differently when you come back in. Now, I usually start with, it's like, look, when we talk about this topic, it's a tough topic for me because I represent every aspect of what people see as the problem. I'm white, I'm male, I'm in a position of authority, right? So I am the definition of privilege. And, and I start there because it's like, look, here's one of the things that's really needed on this topic. People like me may need to lean in, not come to the meeting and just say a few words, kick things off and walk out, but stay there, be a listener and a learner and a participator. That's really important for this project. So, so you know, and I got brought in and, and I actually have mentors. So you know, we talk about having mentors to help grow your career. I have a mentor to help me understand and be empathetic on this topic. And so our chief diversity officer plays that role for me. I have a faculty member who's very engaged with our student body. I sit with them, you know, in a mentoring capacity and just listen and learn and prepare myself to be the type of leader on this topic. Because much like I don't think you can be a leader today and not be about um, the climate and sustainability, I don't think you can be a leader, a credible leader today for an organization and not have clear statements on what you're doing in this topic. So, you know, in, uh, so uh, we've done, you know, so we have a very, very robust, um, uh, you know, initiative for our institution, but within the piece that I control, which is, you know, I, the IT function across the university covers about 900 people. We have a portfolio. I call it a portfolio of initiatives underneath that, that range from women in tech, because we've done a terrible job in tech traditionally around, uh, around gender equity. Um, we have things in in uh, the realm of climate. So essentially, there's two parts of doing this. There is recruiting a more diverse set of candidates to join your organization. And there's also ensuring that you have an inclusive environment so that, you know, your underrepresented groups don't leave you in greater percentages than your overall, yes. you know, overall turnover rate. Yep. Right. If you have a turnover rate of 10 percent, which is not unusual in in, in uh, technology fields, actually, most are at 15. Right. But let, 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 let's say you're at 15. Right. But your your people of color and, and, and your women are leaving at a rate of 30%, you're losing ground against the battle, right? So we look at, you know, we look at what's coming in and we look at the environment that we're creating. I also look at topics like um, IT accessibility, 
as a, an inclusive excellence topic. Because really, when we talk about inclusive excellence, which is what we call it at UC Irvine, it's really about underrepresented groups, right? Minority groups and ensuring that the environment includes them and that all access to people, services, and benefits are equally available to them, right? Um, and so that's a group, for example, that I sponsor on campus. And so we do lots of things. So, uh, the, uh, our chief diversity officer launched something called climate councils you know, that were mostly adopted by schools uh, in terms of bring this topic more to the forefront. I did it with IT as a horizontal, right? So our IT teams are in the schools, they're in a central unit, they're over at the medical center. And so we talk about the climate that we're creating. We do climate surveys as well as employment engagement surveys. And we look and we manage through our data. We look at how our metrics are changing. We look at what the surveys are telling us and we turn those into action plans. And these are groups that I meet with every quarter just to say, um, how's it going? What are you trying to get done next? And where can my role help you get done what this group wants to be done? Uh, here's a, a great story that we were on the, I, I believe we were the first in the country to do this. And Educause put this on, did an article on this. We published an inclusive uh, language guide for our community. Uh, and we invited it and shared it with anybody who wanted to read it. And it's the concept of words matter. Words can divide, you know, divide and create conflict. So let's be thoughtful around the words that we use in different contexts. And so we had a group of people who were very passionate about this. And I said, get it, you know, work as a, work as a team, put together, you know, um, a point of view and, and some examples. And so we now have a guide that people can, you know, reference. And I just look, it, it, it's stop and think before you act, right? The word you choose could be one that creates conflict or harmony. And so that consciousness to every, you know, to every moment, to every action that we take is important uh, in terms of creating a type of environment where everyone can be their best. Yeah, that makes an absolute ton of sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, as you look at the industry today, as you obviously were you know, one of the leading conferences for seeing where transformation is going to happen. What are you most hopeful about when it comes to the future of higher education? And, you know, by the, on the flip side, what, yeah. what kind of concerns you the most? What's keeping yeah. you up at night? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is actually an interesting one, right? Um, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Uh, what I'm hopeful for is that, you know, as we, you know, as we, digitize our human experience, we get all this data, that we actually use it for good, right? That we actually, you know, build the ability to understand and predict situations and and create more equity in our society. What I worry about, and and because I've seen this in other regards, and certainly this has been uh, situations of the past, is that the opposite happens, is that all this data becomes an exacerbation of the inequities that we're struggling with and trying to, right? Because one of the things, someone once taught me that um, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And that's really true. I used to live in the Bay Area. I used to live you know, at the northern end of Silicon Valley. And we always had access to the newest technology and the newest things yeah. before everybody else. You know, that type of privilege of technology and advancement uh, actually makes equity uh, situations worse. And so one of the reasons why you're seeing digital equity is such a, a strong topic of conversation in our community is there is a concern that all of this technology movement and the pandemic highlighted some of these things as well in terms of when we had to go to virtual learning uh, environments, certain students didn't have devices, they didn't have connectivity, they didn't have quiet spaces. So there's an example where you know, 
know, the ability to achieve at the same level was hampered by all of these barriers. And so that's the thing that we have to worry about with all this technology advancement is are we exacerbating problems and just making the problem worse? Because that is a fundamental challenge that we have in our society here in the U.S. Absolutely. Well, and it's fascinating to see it play out in, in so many pockets. And these pockets ultimately collect to a life. That's, you know. Well, Tom, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I so appreciate you joining me here. And, and before we go now, one of the things we do at, at the end of every uh, episode of Illumination is uh, we like to ask folks uh, their favorite restaurant in their hometown. Now, we're obviously in Denver, so I'll, I'll, I'll make it a little more broad for you. If you had a favorite restaurant in either Denver or Irvine, what would it be? Uh, okay, I'm going to have to do Irvine because my sample size in Denver is way too small. <laughs> uh, and and um, I, have to, I, I have to do it where I live versus, right, because, you know, it Orange County, where we're centered, right, is is a county of 3.2 million people, but it's made up of 40 jurisdictions. So sure. you drive a couple of miles, it's you, you're into the next city. Um, and so I actually live in a city called Laguna Beach. It's oh, out okay. near the, out near the water. And our favorite place, my favorite place to eat, is a place called Solani's, which is which is walking distance from my house. So that means it's a very very frequent visit. <laughs> and my wife and I, we go. We actually don't get a table. We go sit at the bar so we can like talk to people in a very very kind of casual. Yeah. Way, so it's called Solani's. Uh, I don't have the address memorized, but it's in my phone. I can tell you that. Oh, that's fine. And place. On the blog post that accompanies this episode, we'll make sure there's a link to it. <laughs> yeah, Tom, yeah. Thank you so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely, Armit. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure, and I hope you guys have a great show. Absolutely. Actually, you know what? Before I let you go, I'm going to yeah. give you one more. Please do plug your podcast. Oh yeah, podcast. Right. So this whole kind of digital movement. Since I since I am the chief troublemaker as well as chief digital officer <laughs> at my university, one of the things I always wanted to do in this role gave me the first real opportunity was to create a podcast to bring in interesting guests to talk yeah. about what the future looks like bring in a, you know a panel of guests to talk about a thorny issue where different perspectives so we call it digital squared life in an increasingly digital world and we bring everything from practitioners to people who are really pushing the envelope uh, I've got Jeff Salingo is going to be uh, our, our next oh, post we just fun. interviewed him a couple days ago I, I love Jeff he's one of my kind of favorite provocateurs that we have in our space and he had some great uh, uh, pearls of wisdom to share with the audience. So we invite people to get out there and listen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, we'd love for people to comment on it. Check out Digital Squared, guys. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great week. This podcast is made possible by a partnership between Modern Campus and The Evolution. The Modern Campus Engagement Platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result? Innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner life cycle that engages modern learners for life, while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit at moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.